Welcome to another episode of Chefs and Guests on the Spoon Mob podcast feed. This week, I'm joined by sommelier Amanda Moss, who I was first introduced through actually from sommelier Kendi Warden and her Instagram, The Grape Grind. Uh, if you haven't checked her stuff out, make sure to do so. She was on the podcast last year, so check out that episode if you haven't. But The Grape Grind is a great way to get into wine if you never have. She also does blind tastings and all that stuff. Her and Amanda are really great friends. I was able to reach out to Amanda, and Amanda has an extensive career in wine sales, not just restaurants too as well. She's worked in restaurants, but she's also done a lot in wine sales, and that's something that I don't really know too much about. So I was really interested to learn kind of more about wine sales and how that whole environment works. You know, obviously I'm aware that there's distributors and certain distributors carry certain products and everything like that, but anything kind of a little bit more in depth past that point, you know, I, I really wasn't sure. And, you know, we've had people on the podcast, you know, we had Chris Dillman and Greg Stokes who have both run wine programs and stuff. And we touched on kind of wine sales a little bit and distributors and stuff like that, but we never really went too in depth about it. So it was really awesome to have Amanda on and she just kind of breaks down how it all works. And some of it is stuff that's obvious, but you just don't think of. And other stuff is just really eye-opening as to kind of how the whole relationship works between a restaurant and a distribution company and wine sales and everything like that. So it was really awesome to get her on the podcast, be able to chat about not just being a SOM and, and doing all the tests and everything, but with the wine sales career and her future plans, which she's just getting ready to kind of announce something probably in the next few months. So you want to make sure to follow her on Instagram. You can find her there. Her username is at Amanda underscore Moss. You can also follow us on Instagram at Spoon Mob, Twitter, Facebook. Check out the website too as well. Past episodes of the podcast, you know, we're on all the major platforms, Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, Amazon, all that stuff. You can find us on there. Just search Spoon Mob. Make sure to follow, subscribe and everything. This is a really interesting episode. It went in a bunch of different directions that I never thought it would. And, and that's kind of the awesome part about doing a podcast is you're exposed to different people and, and different ideas and things that you never really considered. And, you know, Amanda's super knowledgeable about the wine industry. So we're definitely looking forward to everything that she's got coming up and where her career kind of goes from here and everything like that. Really awesome to see, you know, us have another sommelier in Columbus. And, and we have a lot. I'm starting to find a bunch of them. So we definitely want to have all those people on and, and talk about their career. But this is a really awesome episode. So without further delay, here's my conversation with sommelier Amanda Moss. Thanks again for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of your evening here after you've worked your job throughout the day, popping on a podcast. So Appreciate it. You are the first uh, sommelier of the year that we've had on. Uh, you're also the first who's actively doing kind of wine sales too as well, which will be cool to get into. Start kind of back where we always start with everybody at the beginning of their career. How did you first wind up in wine? You went to Columbus State, got a business degree there. Did you fall into wine before that? Was it around that time? Take me through that. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited um, to be here. I kind of fell into wine. That's a really great way to describe it. I had worked in restaurants as a way to kind of put myself through school and just realized that it was really fun. I liked the kind of fast-paced, ever-changing environment. You never knew what was going to happen. And then also had the awareness that the more wine that you sell, the more money you make. So I would say initially it was kind of motivated by, oh, here's a way I can increase my income, but then definitely just kind of fell in love with the like romanticism of wine for sure. I would say the first time I 
realized that this was my industry and I was going to stay here, even like in a business sense, was when I went to Napa Valley with uh, some of my family. And our first stop was Cade on Howe Mountain. I just remember like looking at the vineyard down into the valley and I was like, this is as good as life is going to get. Let's do this more. And it was also the first time I was like, oh, not all Sauvignon Blancs are the same. I think that was the first time I had a Sauvignon Blanc that blew my mind. And that would have been 2017. So I had had an interest in wine, enjoyed drinking wine. But I think that was the moment that I was like, okay, this is it. This is what we're doing. What did you originally intend for your career path to be when you were going to college? So I went to Columbus State to get an associate's degree and was a business focus and transferred to uh, Fisher College of business at Ohio State. And I think I always knew I wanted to be in business in some capacity. I think initially I was thinking international business because that seemed like an opportunity to live abroad and do business. You know, when you're kind of like 18 and romanticizing the whole world, then I realized very quickly that that was not a legitimate focus. Um, It's very vague. You basically have to like minor economics. And I'm like, no, thank you. For me, the approach to business within business school was not what I had envisioned. I love business because it can connect people. We can solve problems, that kind of humanitarian, almost give back like certified B corporation. That's kind of my vision of business. And they're like, here's how you can drive corporate profits. And I'm like, I don't care about those things. I decided to take a step back from Fisher College of Business rather than just accumulating a massive amount of student debt and just do some reevaluation. Working through restaurants the whole time at that point and was just like, okay, well, this is working. This isn't. And let's just kind of see where we end up. So kind of happenstance and kind of just like this wasn't what I wanted. So a little bit of both. I found out that at some point you wound up in London working at Luminary Bakery. So how exactly did that come about? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So I absolutely adore Luminary Bakery. Those women have just a piece of my heart. So in 2014, I went to London, England for the first time with a group of friends, just had never been. I was always kind of wanted to go and have the opportunity to. When I was visiting there, I was like, man, I really love this city. Like, I want to come back here, kind of dipping back into that vision of like wanting to live abroad for international business, right? And I was like, well, let's see what like this could be. So I came back and found an organization um, here in the States that connects Americans with internship opportunities in the UK. And so pursued that. Um, It was a seven month period of time. And the fun and challenging part of that was I went to the UK as technically a charity worker visa. So having to fundraise seven months worth of living expenses from like friends and family being like, hey, I'm going to go work with a social enterprise internship for seven months. Here's what I'm hoping to accomplish. Do you want to be a part of it? And that was a very eye-opening and humbling experience and have so much gratitude for the generosity of people in my life. Luminary Bakery is incredible. They partner with women who have had disadvantaged backgrounds for various circumstances and focus on equipping with skills, interpersonal skills, life courses, just to kind of say, hey, you know, here's where you've been and here's where you can go. And we want to help support you through that process. I absolutely loved it. And then I still keep in touch with some of the ladies from over there and 
they uh, actually got to meet Meghan Markle. Like she came to the bakery and I just was so ecstatic for them. I was just like, oh my gosh, I wish I was there. But they're doing some absolutely incredible work over there. What kind of work were you doing? Were you doing any of the baking or were you kind of in the office kind of coordination with different people that you were kind of bringing into the bakery to help with those skills and stuff like that? Yeah. So I did like one batch of baking. I will say it it didn't go poorly, but it wasn't great. Something that a lot of people, like I didn't even realize until I went over there was everything is on the metric system. And the heat is in Celsius. So it's a little bit different. Makes sense because it's just more mathematical where we're like doubling fractions. So it kind of actually makes more sense. But definitely having been raised in the US where it's like, we use the imperial system and over there it's metric and it's like completely different. So I did one batch of that. And then mainly my job was kind of just doing a little bit of hodgepodge things. Like sometimes I would like wash dishes after all the ladies had been baking. Sometimes I would go to different um, accounts that the bakery service. So they at the time were a wholesale bakery. So I went to a bunch of the cafes and some of the uh, clients that the bakery had and helped with marketing material and just kind of created continuity with branding and having some nutritional facts on the back or a card that could say, hey, this contains gluten. Hey, this contains nuts, um, especially with you know consciousness of people's allergies saying, hey, verified, this doesn't have that in it. Updating recipes for some of the uh, wholesalers so they could know what was in there. Just kind of a bunch of different things like that. But it was really fun because kind of similar to restaurants, I never knew what I was going to do each day, which I kind of like that. All right, let's see what we get into today. So then after you return back to you know the US, you wind up in Tucson serving and everything at Casino del Sol Resort, which is like a, at the time like a Forbes, like four star like property or whatever. How did you wind up there? And then how did that turn into you assisting with wine inventory and like wine sales? After I came back from living in the UK, I say I'm from Columbus. My family's been here for numerous years. I was not wanting to be in Columbus. I actually still wanted to be in the UK and that wasn't an option. I have family that lives out in Tucson, Arizona, and they were like, you can move here. I was like, okay. So, Because at the time I was back at Martini, like getting back into kind of restaurants, which was great. I absolutely love Martini. That's my you know home family restaurant, but I didn't want to be in Columbus, it felt known, but also kind of different and weird coming back from living in a different culture. So I just packed up my car. A friend and I drove across the country for three days with all of my stuff and moved to Tucson, Arizona. Part of the reason I did move out there was the opportunity to work with a four-star steakhouse, get that opportunity to have fine dining experience and just more exposure to wine. So yeah, I, I was able to help with kind of inventory and understanding a little bit more of like pricing and how things kind of were structured in terms of building a wine list and then had the opportunity out there to take the introductory sommelier exam through the court of master song and that was kind of another one of those moments where i was like okay yep we're going to stay in this industry and kind of take a path of building more knowledge and expertise in this field did they kind of push you to take the intro exam or I'm assuming they probably like covered your costs or whatever, or is that kind of like how you first found out about the intro exam? Yeah. So both, um, I wouldn't say they necessarily forced us to do it, but it was something the food and beverage director has a pretty close relationship with 
a couple of the sommeliers, master sommeliers, and they host the exam at the casino. And so because I worked for PY Steakhouse in the casino, I had the ability to take the exam without having to pay for it. So it was a couple of years later that I was like, oh, <laughs> saved me a lot of money. And definitely was great because I had the opportunity to be able to build community and study with other people and just kind of get to taste some wine of things that I hadn't tried. Martini is Italian concepts here in Columbus. So they have a great Italian portfolio and a pretty good California. So I knew both of those pretty well, but trying Spanish wines, you know, Argentinian Malbecs outside of just personal consumption, that was kind of a great new exposure in that field. Did you study before you took the exam or did you just go into it, kind of wing it or like, how did you approach it? I think this was shortly after the court started putting together the intro book. So we were able to get that book and started kind of walking through it. And we also had a older copy of a Society of Wine Educators book, pretty extremely different in terms of content. It was like, hey, here's a basic overview. And then here's almost every detail in the wine world. So it was a little bit overwhelming initially kind of first starting out. But thankfully, we had our like manager who was studying with us. We had um, some of the distributors coming in and like walking us through some of the things and tasting some wines with us. So I would say it was very collaborative. Uh, I hadn't done a ton of studying personally prior to the opportunity to take that exam. So it was a great kind of intro and just, uh, I loved taking the introductory sommelier exam just because you had two days with master psalms walking through content before you took the exam. So it kind of took some of the pressure off of like having to know everything before you take it because they kind of walk you through a lot of it too. Kind of a little bit of both. What was the hardest part about the intro exam for you? Oh my gosh, it feels so long ago and like, such a different life. I'm sure I thought it was uh, super hard. (laughs) Now I'm like, oh, I could probably do that in my sleep. I think just the wide breadth of information that could be on the exam, right? Like you could get a question on soil type, you could get a question on service. Granted, it's believe 100 questions, 70 to 100 questions. So it's not a huge exam. And thankfully, it was all multiple choice. So a pretty good test taker. So I was like, okay, I thought I did decently well and I ended up passing. But I just remember when we were kind of going through the study process, I was like, this is so much stuff. Like, how are we supposed to know all this? How are we supposed to fit this in our brain? You need like a, what, a 75 or an 80 to pass or something like that, right? I believe so. Yeah. I think you need like a 75. That sounds about right. I'd have to look at the... So then you pass the intro first try and you wind up eventually kind of getting your first wine and liquor sales job. Yeah. So that was a little bit of networking and a little bit of kind of being at the right place at the right time. I loved getting the experience of working in fine dining. There are a lot of details that, in my opinion, are kind of superfluous. <laughs> like it shouldn't matter. I understand it's part of like the ambiance and the experience, but also from like a ser- service standpoint, taking so much longer than it needs to. Like something as simple as like crumbing after every course. And it's like, yes, like if there's crumbs on the table, like clear them off for sure. But being graded on like taking a crummer like across the tablecloth if there's nothing in front of someone seems ridiculous to me. I'm like, this is so point unnecessary. So I had been going through that a little bit and was ready for a new challenge. Yeah. So I started working with uh, 
Breakthrough Beverage in Tucson, Arizona, which was a really great and eye-opening experience. It was a lot. Like it was good, but it was a lot. Like it made me a better employee and a better worker in the long run. But at the time it was very overwhelming in a lot of ways. When you get started with like wine sales, did they start you with like a small book of business? Like here's already some clients, previous rep kind of left, like can you go check in on these people? Or is it like, we could definitely get you started, but like you got to come up with 10 to 15 clients on your own and then we'll kind of like bring you on. Like how do they kind of structure it? So they, and I would say this is kind of my experience equally across both states. I mean, selling different items kind of similarly was you would have accounts and like a book of business that you would be writing um, and accounts that you would call on. But at the same time, you were responsible for hitting goals and hitting placements. Um, I sold high proof spirits. I say high proof, it's just liquor. But in Ohio, you have to differentiate because it's a control state. That was something that you can't really ever prepare someone for. Um, I think there's a lot of perceptions of what working in distribution is like, I think people think we sit around and taste wine all day and we go to dinners and happy hours. And like, yes, those things are a part of the business and that's the more fun side of things. But there's also a lot of expectations, a lot of goals, um, especially if you're selling liquor and depending on what portfolios you have, there's the expectations of features and menu placements and then doing, obviously this is all before COVID, but doing activations, which would be going to a bar for a party and like passing out samples of a product or a cocktail and having to be there and like, you know, kind of pay for it. And then the company or like the brands reimburse you. But uh, there's a lot of kind of expectations that I think the general public doesn't see or quite get a grasp for. So I think it's often glamorized and I'm like, it can be really hard or you can be exhausted and you're like, I still have to go do two activations tonight. And like, and then you might have an 8.30, 9 o'clock meeting in the morning. And you're like, all right, so we'll sleep on the weekends if I don't have an activation I have to go do. I think finding balance for yourself in a sales position can be a challenge unless you have really firm, like personal boundaries and like find ways to just kind of protect your, protect your time, especially your like free time for yourself. Is it just kind of really come down to the price point for people where it's like, yeah, you guys have this bourbon, but this place also has this bourbon that I'm already with. Like, what can you do kind of thing? So there's a lot of things that go on behind the scenes. Some of it just depends on who the buyer is and their personal preference. So if there isn't any like programming, like corporately or, you know, a supplier working with a bar specifically saying, hey, we will help support you with bar mats and menu printing and things like that. Like some of those kind of intangible things that, you know, bars and restaurants need that can be expensive because there's really strict laws, especially with liquor, that you can't say, hey, this has to be in your well and I'll come swipe my card. Like that conversation is illegal. There are a lot of other ways that suppliers and bars and restaurants kind of come to an agreement Sometimes it is just like, this is awesome and it's brand new. Um, But then there can be like, hey, if you want allocated or restricted bourbon, you need to carry some of our other spirit. And that's kind of across the board. Like every distributor does that. Like Four Roses, for to get Pappy Van Winkle, you pretty much have to have Four Roses. Like that's how they 
kind of leverage the brand and make sure they're taking care of what they need and taking care of their uh, customers as well. So it's kind of a give and take a little bit. Yeah. So sometimes it's like, I like this rep. I don't like this rep. It's kind of just really across the board. There isn't one size fits all with that decision. Yeah. I don't know why I never thought of that, but it makes sense. Like, you know, you start attaching like different things to construct kind of the deal and it's like, yeah, we'll take care of, you know, this part of your operation and this little thing. And it's like, and in turn, if you want the flagship thing, like you also need to take like our C-level product. I mean, it makes a lot of sense, like when you think about it, but it's just something that, I don't know, I just never really like actually thought like that's how it would be. Is it kind of the same for wine where it's like if you get a winery, it's pretty large. Everybody wants this one, but we got this like red blend over here. Like, yeah, take some of that too. I think with wine, it's a little bit different. It kind of depends like brand to brand. So there are some larger like conglomerates within the wine world that do have similar capacity to spirit brands in terms of support. Like, hey, we'll help print your menus. We'll come train your staff. There's a lot of kind of incidental things that are offered as a way to kind of support and incentivize uh, accounts to take those wines. I would say some of the allocation process in terms of wine, I think that's a little bit different based on like distributor to distributor. Like for example, Opus One, all of their wine is allocated and all they make is Opus One and Overture and everything is allocated. So they go through the allocation process and say, hey, these accounts have supported us previously you get the invitation to purchase. Then they get these like fancy cards and you deliver them to your accounts with a QR code. It's like, please select how many bottles of Opus one you would like with the understanding of like, this is when this will ship. And then this is coming to you at this time. So then you kind of, depending on what type of account, you can usually get like a two to three week window to say, yes, I'll take it now because they do acknowledge that it's a high ticket item. And then some of the other allocations are really just at the discretion of the distributor. So that's where the relationships kind of come into play. That's where inventory, how much is available and who's going, where is it going to be most beneficial? So I think there's a lot of those kind of internal conversations and I think it's different based on each distributor. Somebody like Duck Corn, right? Like they have a bunch of different labels. So like maybe with them, it's not, they might have all their top and mid-tier stuff allocated, but then they have kind of this more blend, poorer quality grapes, all that stuff label too. And it's like, yeah, well, if you want like, you know, our three palms, you got to take a few bottles of this off our hands kind of too as well. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I will say suppliers and brand managers for the most part usually get to have a say in where their wine is allocated to. Yeah, there's a lot of moving parts, especially with uh, COVID and like the supply chain. I feel like I've learned more about shipping and how long it takes goods to get from one place to another and who has what wine. Like I've tracked inventory closer than I ever thought I would in my entire career. (laughs) I'm like, oh, it just left California. Great. We'll see it in three weeks. (laughs) Like just trying to plan to figure out what's going to happen with when wine's coming in because it's kind of gut-wrenching to tell accounts like, hey, I know you need this wine and restaurants are having probably the hardest time they've had consistently. I'm going to guess since like 2008 with like the last economic downturn and just saying like, hey, I know you need this wine, but I don't have it right now. There's a part of me that like really cares about people that's a little soul crushing. And then being like, do you want to try this other wine in the interim? And I think there's a level of adaptability and flexibility that's required now that we haven't seen really 
previously to this extent. Do those supply chain issues then lead to a restaurant, maybe like a bigger kind of corporate chain, essentially hoarding almost in a way, like stockpiling, I shouldn't say hoarding, but stockpiling wine where a smaller restaurant, not even necessarily a mom and pop, but somebody that only has maybe one or two restaurants, like they can't really do that because they don't have the space. So does that like almost force the supply of stuff that's in demand kind of all to one side of like big corporate chains or or does it still kind of stay balanced because the corporate chains maybe aren't having enough business to turn over those bottles as much? That's a really great question. And I think it's a little bit of both and a little bit of neither of those, if that makes sense. So just in my experience, I would say that small independent restaurants in some ways have been doing better during this time because they have the flexibility to say, okay, you don't have this Pinot Noir, I'll take this Pinot Noir that is the same price, maybe not the same region or appellation, but you know, and that's where a working wine knowledge is so important because you're like, I know you need a bottle of wine at this cost wholesale. These are the other three options that I know that are going to be comparable in style, flavor profile, and price. So I think independent restaurants have adapted a lot quicker to the supply chain. Um, I haven't, and I can't speak for everybody, but I haven't seen like massive like restaurant chains stockpiling. I don't think because the laws of paying for product when you receive it, Ohio is a cash on delivery state. And that would just be a kind of a massive cost to those restaurants. And then you have to store it and then you kind of run into, okay, well, what if things get stolen? There's kind of a lot of more risk on the larger chains to take on huge inventory. So what I have been doing with some of my accounts, especially knowing what the higher volumes are, items are, I will like allocate them within our system saying, hey, this wine needs to be locked down for this account because it's by the glass. Obviously, we can't do that for everybody. I jokingly say this time is like whack-a-mole where it's like you take care of one inventory issue and you're like, great, I got this wine sorted out for this account. And then like three other issues pop up like immediately. You're just like, oh my gosh, I can't literally keep track of every single item in our system as much as I would love to have like a massive spreadsheet and like map of where things go. It's just not realistic. So what I've been doing is kind of just looking and saying, okay, who are my top accounts? Who do I have the closest relationship with? How do I protect their inventory and maintain their business? And then, I mean, I very much try and take care of everybody the best I can, but eventually you have to make a choice. I think that's just kind of what we've been seeing. And national accounts for the first time in the time I've worked in distribution are being a little bit more flexible in terms of what products you can send because before they weren't allowed to take replacements. And I've seen more accounts take re- like replacement or temporary options than ever before because they just know they're like, when is this coming in? And you're like, maybe never. <laughs> I don't know. By cash on delivery, just to clarify for anybody listening, you mean when you show up with the bottles, you have to pay for it then and there. It's not like you have 30 days to pay it or anything like that. It's then and there. So it's different than non-alcoholic items where you can say, hey, I will, here's your invoice. You have up to 30 days or I don't actually know how long. So I'm just guesstimating to be able to pay this invoice with alcohol. You have to pay for it when it's delivered. And if not, like 
the distributor can refuse to deliver it. There are times like I'll get a call being like, hey, can you pick up this check from so-and-so because they didn't have a check available. And I, I get the choice to say yes or no of like, yep, I'll swing by and grab a check from them or nope, bring the product back. You know, like that's the law. So it's kind of one of those, like we get to sometimes make the choice of, hey, yep, we will help you out with that. Or this is a consistent problem. The product's coming back. Like I, I can't hunt you down every other week for a check. Like, you know, this is coming. You know how this works. This isn't a new concept. So it kind of keeps like almost the playing field a little level. The restaurants obviously need you for the wine and everything, but you want to keep that relationship kosher, but also you still like got to pay your bills on time. Right. It's similar to that. Like, yeah, if you don't pay your water bill, they're going to shut your water off. Like kind of similar to that. And there's massive differences between each state. For example, when I worked in Arizona, you would have case discounts. So you would say like, let's pick an item that's $8 a bottle on the first case. On the second case, it could go down to $7.50. Or on like the fifth case, it could go down to 7 So there was almost like a case incentive to buy larger volume, which I do think that benefits some of the larger concepts that do have better cash flow and space to store items. Ohio is not that way. Like first case is best price. Like, so in some ways, you're like, it makes it a little bit more challenging to say, hey, I need you to take five cases of this because there isn't any in, like price break or just discount. But in a lot of ways, it does keep it from having, you know, one or two massive companies like ruling the whole the whole market. There's pros and cons to both. I would tell you having worked in a state where I sold liquor on premise and then moving back to a state where it's a control state, it doesn't make any sense. Like the whole system of the control state, I'm like, I understand this makes the state of Ohio so much money. It also is ridiculous. <laughs> like you have people camping outside of liquor stores for the potential release of a rare bourbon. It's the wildest thing I've ever seen. Yeah, that part's pretty like crazy. Bourbon took off, but it's still, I mean, most bourbon is like relatively affordable. But I mean, I think you pretty much hit the nail on the head when it's like, it makes Ohio a lot of money. It makes the state so much money. 2018, you passed the WSET 2. Did you take the WSET 1 at all or did you go straight to the 2? I did not take level one because at that point I took it through the company uh, the company I worked with at the time and they offered level two and having been an introductory SOM, it just didn't make sense. I haven't ever seen like a course book for WSET one, but it sounds like it's explaining what a grace is kind of thing. I don't know. That's, that could be incorrect. But for most people I know, start with, if you have a wine background, most people start with level two. And I say wine background as in exposure, whether that's restaurants or distribution, or you just really like to drink wine and you like to you know explore different varietals. Most people would, I would say, start with level two. Is that you have to go somewhere where they have it, you're there for a day, multiple choice questions, or like how is that kind of structured? So I can't speak for how most people take the exam. I know it's changed a little bit with COVID, but um, we took ours at our office and we had someone who proctored the exam on behalf of the trust and we did our exam. It was also a multiple choice test 
and then the answer, like the answer keys get sent off to actually London to be able to be graded. And then, which is good and bad. Like I definitely enjoy the level of with the uh, court of sommeliers and CSW, you find out that day. So it's like, you know, there's this like kind of anticipation with WSET where you're like, did I pass? I don't know. I'm like second guessing myself the whole time. I will say one thing to give credit to WSET is there is options to kind of challenge a question. I don't remember specifically what happened, but I just remember I was sitting there and I was one of the last people to finish because I was so frustrated because this question didn't make any sense. And I just was like, I even asked the guy who was proctoring, I'm like, what are they asking here? Because this this language doesn't make sense. So he's like, answer it the best you can and write a note on the like on the test saying this language is unclear or this doesn't make sense because what I was thinking is I was like if I don't pass this exam because of this one question I swear so it felt nice to be like hey can you fix this because that doesn't make sense and then after I turned in the exam he showed me in the book like this is the one that they were like referring to and I was like that language still doesn't make sense and he's like that's why you wrote it down He's like, because I think he saw and he saw what I was thinking. And I'm like, I explained my logic as to why this doesn't make sense. And he's like, yep, just document that. Did you ever find out if you got that question right? Like, do they send you back? Like, what questions you got wrong? Or is it just like you passed or failed? So similar to the court, if you passed or you didn't pass, I will say WSET does give you kind of levels of passing. So it's like you can just pass and then you can pass with merit and pass with distinction. So it kind of gives you almost like the curve of like, hey, you didn't just barely pass and you got, you know, you're you're pretty good at this. And then distinction is like, you're proficient. That was something that was kind of nice and just kind of feels like a little bit of a bragging, right? When you're putting it on like a list of you're like, I passed with merit. Like it's better than just passing. Will you ever attempt a level three or level four? Is that something you want to do? Yeah. So that's actually what's next is going to be probably this year, maybe in the spring. Definitely in the year 2022, WSET 3. Going to be gathering the study crew and preparing for that. Partially because I like to continue. I feel like it's a language. The more you study and keep up with it, the better you are and the less you forget. And it's just kind of a fun challenge. of, And it gives you a better indication of like what the different styles and how the exams work. And I'm excited to get back into a tasting component of an exam as well. Then you wind up back in Ohio. What brought you back? So I always joke that Ohio is a firing call. Like you weave and you're like, this is great. And then you're like, okay, I kind of miss Ohio. Not that Ohio specifically, um, but the people are really great here. My family's from here. My grandmother is 93. So that was a good, just like, hey, this time's important. Come back to Ohio. Although I always have to remind myself every winter that I chose this, especially, you know, like this week when you're like, oh, it's single digits. Friends in Tucson like to torment me and they're like, it's 75 and sunny here. I was like, I know it's beautiful. Stop rubbing it in. I'm cold. (laughs) So that's how I ended up back here was just wanting to be closer to friends and family again. Why'd you decide to go back into the restaurant world rather than continue with sales? Restaurants are amazing for transitions. I knew it, I definitely knew I wanted to get back into distribution. Um, and I knew that I was going to pursue that avenue again. Um, it also takes time to 
you know, interview and go through that process and make the choice of which company you want to work for. And moving back, I just knew that I needed to get back into the workforce immediately. So called my martini family and was like, hi, I'm coming back. (laughs) Can I come back to work? And they're like, of course. Super grateful for that. It just kind of gave me a chance to get reestablished in Columbus and then start looking for a job in distribution again. Was martini, and I'm not sure, I can't remember. Is that part of the Cameron Mitchell restaurant group? It is. The concept's been around for a long time. I can't remember specifically which number it was, but they've, I think, celebrated like 22, 25 years now. So they've been around for a long time. It's one of my favorite places just because I feel like the late location is super cool. You're right across from the convention center here in Columbus. And I always tell people, I'm like, it's some of the best people watching in the city because like they have these giant like windows up the front and you can just oh my gosh, some of the craziest things I've ever seen have been outside those windows. Um, Yeah, it's a great restaurant. I love the food, obviously Italian inspired and just solid across the board. So that's how I kind of ended up back there was to just have a foot back in the door and make some money. You know, restaurants are great if you're like, oh, I need some cash. You're like, go work a shift and you leave with that cash immediately. Did you ever consider, since you were already in the Cameron Mitchell restaurant group, like transferring to another property that maybe had higher volume of wine sales or anything like that? Or was it just like, I really like this environment. That's where I want to be. A little bit of both. Kind of looked at other options. I would say within Cameron Mitchell at the time, I know they've changed a lot and have added a bunch of new concepts and they're ever evolving. But uh, the only other option would have been high in terms of higher volume and wine sales would have been Ocean Club. But I didn't really want to work all the way out at Easton. I just kind of decided to knowing that I wanted to kind of get back into distribution. Um, I definitely continued in like wine exposure, but went more of the route of like a tasting group and networking with uh, and building community with other Somanese and wine enthusiasts in the city. Did you ever consider like working for a smaller, more boutique type of restaurant that had maybe a more like eclectic wine list? So either to get exposure to stuff that you didn't know or where you would maybe be able to kind of help build that wine list too as well if they didn't have like somebody who was already a sommelier like in charge of that program? I actually didn't just because one of the things about Martini that is so great from a server standpoint is it's really consistent and having worked at other concepts throughout my career that were not super consistent that that consistent income was definitely something where I was like okay I kind of know what I'm going to get uh the clientele changes depending on what is at the convention center which is super fun I mean you'd have like comic-con across the street then you'd have ballroom dancers cheerle- cheer competitions like pipe fitters and like dentists, all kinds of different people. So that kind of kept it fun. And I definitely settled into that. Okay. I know this list. I know the food. And it was kind of one of those, it didn't take a lot of mental uh, capacity for me to to like work that shift. So it opened it up for me to be like, okay, now I'm going to go study before or after work because I kind of know what I'm getting into. There was enough variety in terms of clientele, but knew the food, knew the wine list. It was kind of like a plug and go kind of situation, but it was still really fun. September, 2019, you passed the certified exam. Which of the three parts was the most challenging out of that? I think they all had 
their own individual challenges. I would say initially it was theory just because one of, I would say one of the things I don't entirely love about the court of nominees is the lack of transparency of like what you're going to be tested on. It's kind of like, here's the world of wine, know everything. And you're like, okay, but like what's important and like what's not? Um, because you don't want to spend so much time studying the wrong thing and being like, I know all of these things. And they're like, but we need to know about these seven things. And you're like, well, shit, I don't know about those seven things because I know about these 10 things. I would say there was a lot more like math on the certified SOM exam that I was just like, I wasn't expecting this. I wish I would have known to bring a calculator. So um, one of my best friends like tested um, like a month after me. And I was like, listen, I can't tell you anything about the exam, but bring an old school calculator. Just do it. Because I'm literally just guessing. Like, I'm kind of one of those people I got into wine because I don't love math. So to have to do math in my head of like poor cost, I'm like, oh, shit. (laughs) Like, we're going to guess and hope for the best. Service is intimidating just because, I mean, I love serving. I, I feel like that was one of those things. I'm like, oh, I have great rapport with tables. Like, I wasn't terrified about that. But there's also this whole like, you're serving a master sommelier who's asking you questions and you're doing other tasks at the same time. So you're like, okay, don't forget to set down this water glass or this wine glass and answer questions about classic cocktails and what, you know, I'm interested in a bottle of uh, Sir Winston Churchill. Who's the producer of that? And you're like, okay, so there's just like a million things going on. Thankfully, I had a very kind master sommelier who did not destroy me when I was just straight up bullshitting. There was one point I was just like, that wasn't right. I just committed and went with it. Like, it's kind of the diff- it's different because when you're at a table, there's not necessarily the assumption that you know more than your guests, but you're like, oh, I can kind of fidge a li- like fudge a little of the information. The master psalms know more than you, so you can't bullshit them because they're gonna they're gonna know. And you're like, great. Like, I think I just totally made up whatever was in like a sidecar. I just started making up over in it. I was like, after I said, it, I was like, that's not it. Like, I just, but you're in front of someone, so I'm just like, okay, just move on, let it go. And also, one of the things they tell you that a lot of people don't think of is when you're carrying the tray. You have to like back up for service as if there's someone there. So there's one person, the master song is at the table. And then there's like a mock example. So there'd be like a female, a male. And so you're supposed to pour in order and like proper service, which is, you know, important. Also, when you're setting things down, you're not supposed to cross the plane of where the person is sitting. Like you're supposed to act like they're really there. So that was something that someone gave me feedback on. They're like, before you go into the exam and make sure you back up and go around the chair and not through the chair because you'll get docked for like knocking grandma on the head. Even though she's not really there, she's supposed to be there. And you're just like, okay. That's kind of crazy because they could easily just get like a couple mannequins and just throw them in the chairs. I, yeah, I don't know if that'd be better or worse. I really hate dolls. So I feel like that would creep me out. But yes, that personally sounds like my nightmare, but uh, it would be an option. Was the certified exam easier or harder than the W set? I know like the two is kind of comparable to the certified. I would say 
in my experience. Um, I'm, in, I'm interested to take WSET 3 and kind of give a comparison of certified SOM to um, WSET 3. I would say certified SOM was more difficult than WSET 2. Um, but again, I know the court is ever changing and changing the questions and kind of making it more challenging to, to not keep it simple. And I mean, it's, it's fine. It's kind of fun that way to be like, okay, well, I answered these really hard questions, whether I got them right or not, we did it, right? You're like, put put it in the thing and move on. I will tell you there is a, there is a decent amount of time in between, depending on what slot you're in for service, there can be a lot of time in between your service examination and the results. And I went back to Tucson to test for certified SOM just because I still was in contact with food and beverage director of Casino del Sol. And I just kind of reached out and was like, Hey, can I, can you reserve a spot for me? You know, like I'll definitely handle like all of the financial aspect of it. But I just, because Tucson is so close to California, that specific exam like fills up almost instantaneously and don't know when they're going to release the date. Like I kind of knew it was going to be in September because they do introductory and then they do certified um, after that. But I didn't know when it was going to be released. And I was just like, I'm all the way in the Midwest. Like, I don't want to miss that window. Um, so I had my spot kind of held for me, which I acknowledge is like definitely a place of connection and privilege. I knew a bunch of the people that were testing for certified because I used to work with them. So while we were waiting for our results, we all went to a like local Mexican restaurant and probably did two shots of tequila and had margarita because you just need to take the edge off. You're just like, I don't know if I passed that, but that was probably one of the like most intense things I've ever been through where you're just like, it's all on the line. It's like, it's done now. There's a relief of being like, okay, it's over, but just being unsure as to whether you'd be able to like pass or not. So definitely it feels like a high stakes experience. When you take the certified exam, are you on the clock to do the advanced if you wanted to? Isn't there a certain window or do you have to get to the advanced level and then you're in that kind of window to sit for the master? So if I remember correctly, I, it might have changed now with all of the COVID um, you know, postponements, but it was typically, I think, within two to three years, you could do uh, certified to advance and or you had to do, be within a rest had to be in restaurants within the last two to three years. Maybe that's what it is. Um, I know there's some sort of like two to three window. And that was kind of part of the motivation of taking certified when I did was having the time in my personal and professional life, but also it's a lot of studying. Like it'd be like, okay, work a whole day, then come home and we're doing this region. Um, I have probably some of the most aggressive color coded notes I've ever written in my entire life because you have to organize the information somehow. Like it's, it's very similar to like, here's the wine world, go figure it out. So you have to come up with your own system and your own structure and just being like, okay, I'm going to do this, this, and this at the end of the day. But I hadn't been, I mean, I had been in restaurants, but I will not continue with the court in terms of examinations at this time. Studying and prepping for the exam, like how much of a lead time, like, are you start studying like four months out, six months out? I think everyone's a little bit different. Like when I'm getting into an examination, like season, I'm kind of like, okay, I'll start just like reading things at night again. And then I would say within like four to six months out is like, okay, now we're on a study schedule where you're like, okay, tonight is France or this, this 
three weeks, we're studying France. We're deep diving. And then next we're going to Italy and then we're going to Australia. Uh, That's kind of how I do it is I pick a region and I'm like, okay, let's deep dive into this for a certain period of time and then move on. And then right before the examination, like go back through everything, probably about a week or two before. It's just constant review of just as much information as you can fit in your brain. COVID happens. I'm assuming Martini there just ends. Everybody kind of gets laid off when COVID happens, restaurants shut down, all that stuff. What did you kind of do? Yeah. So actually my last shift serving ever so far, I mean, having gone back, was the shutdown in Ohio. So March 15th, 2020 um, was my last serving shift at Martini. I think that'll be a shift I'll never forget just because there were so much unknowns and people were coming in and like tipping us all like a hundred dollars because we're like restaurants are about to close and nobody knew what was going to happen. I was very fortunate to have also been working a second job at that point. Like I was just working at Martini for kind of fun and extra cash. So I still had like a full-time job to go back to. So I was very fortunate in that. But there was a lot of uncertainty. And when it first happened, like a bunch of us at Martini had like just kind of a group chat of like everybody checking in being like, how are you processing this? How are you handling this? And to give Cameron Mitchell and um, his team so much credit, they really took care of their staff to the best ability that they could. Like this was the time like we were working in restaurants and not restaurants, but grocery stores were being cleared out of food and we're all like, oh my God, like we're not going to be able to go get food because now all the food's gone and like everyone's freaking out. And they were like, hey, we have all of this food that we're not going to be able to sell in the restaurant because we're going to be closing. Take it home. So they texted everybody. They're like, hey, come get a bunch of food from here. Take it home. I swear for the first like three weeks of the pandemic, I have never eaten better in my life because it was like, oh, tonight I'm going to have some veal martini because it's, it's in my fridge. Um, so that was super kind and super fun and kind of just alleviated some of the pressure of just like, no one knows what's happening. I think I had fresh frozen pasta in my freezer for like four months. Like They were just like, take all the pasta we've made. And you're like, great, I'll eat that eventually. And you're like, just throw it in the freezer. And then you'd be like, tonight I'm going to have pasta. And you're like, it's almost as good as being at Martini. Not quite, but it's a close second. So you wound up, taking, I think, the Society of Wine Educators Certified Specialist of Wine exam. What exactly is the Society of Wine Educators? Yeah, so it is a different certifying body. Um, I think it'll be becoming increasingly relevant in terms of wine certifications moving forward, um, especially with some of the hesitancy to participate in the court of sommeliers at this time from a lot of people. It's a very, very theory intense exam. So for CSW or certified specialist of wine, it is a multiple choice, might be like a hundred questions. I can't entirely remember how many there are. And they give you a book, which is very, very helpful. I was kind of like, this is great coming from certified SOM where I'm figuring out all these things and using different resources. It was like, here's your one resource but it's also so in-depth. I remember looking at Kendi Warden, who's one of my best friends. I know she's been on the podcast with you. We study together all the time. 
Um, we prepared for certified SOM at the same time. We did CSW together. We're going to be queuing up WSET3 here shortly. And I just looked at her being like, we're certified SOM. Now, granted, that's not like we know everything, but it's like we know some things, right? And just looking at her and being like, did you know this? Like, this is the first time I'm hearing about this and I feel a little bit cheated. And she's like, no, I didn't know this either. I'm like, okay, great. So I would say CSW is not the place to start if you want to dive into wine certifications. I would definitely say start with WSET2 or look into what the introductory SOM is offering right now. They, they might have the ability to do it virtually. I'm not entirely sure what the port is doing right now. CSW is intense. I would definitely say the most challenging in terms of theory because, again, they want to know you read their content. So they ask a lot of questions out of their book which makes sense. Um, but it's not one of those that you're like, oh, I can have a working wine knowledge and like pass this exam. You're like, no, you got to put the work in and really study because they ask questions that are very uh, tricky and can be misleading. So that's a, that would be my one like feedback for Society of Wine Educators. It's like, do you have to make the multiple choice questions so confusing or challenging? You're like, I feel like you're trying to confuse me. With COVID, I mean, you know, you're working in restaurants and then kind of flip back over to wine sales, distribution sales. Was there any wines that you were able to find due to collectors selling off some of their stuff, restaurants not being open, so allocations are out there for, for different people? Some restaurants even sold their sellers just to be able to help some of their workers kind of make it through a couple months when you know they're waiting for unemployment to come in and stuff like that. You know, wineries wound up having backlog, all this stuff. So there's kind of like this weird, like everybody has supply and they don't know where to move it thing. Was there anything that you were able to find, get your hands on, or were surprised to see that was kind of out there at that time? Um, I would say this isn't a personal thing, but I think we saw kind of referring back to like allocations, Opus One opened up their allocations wider than they ever have. Definitely making some more available for retail just because they know that restaurants, you know, we're having a hard time and their wines are like $250 wholesale. Like that's not nothing, especially for a restaurant. And it's something that's going to sit on the list too, right? Like let's not buy the glass item. So I think I saw some of those allocations open up more so than I thought I would. And I think we saw a lot of wine suppliers get really creative during that time and really utilize, especially the early days of 2020, utilize um, Zoom tastings and kind of staff training, especially for sales professionals um, in distribution. So getting to have a Zoom call with Molly, the winemaker at Sequoia Grill, where they each, they gave each of us a bottle. So we were all, you know, at home and socially distanced. And um, the supplier bought us all like individualized meals that we went and picked up. And then we got to have like kind of a food and wine night with Molly, which was as a wine geek was, I was like, this is awesome to just get to listen to her process and how she makes wine and why she, the ratios that she does and just her vision. Um, that was something that was super cool. And I really enjoyed. And yeah, so we saw a couple of uh, the wine suppliers really be like, hey, we want to, you know, take care of you guys in distribution because we didn't get the ability to stop. There's pros and cons to that. Like, I'm very grateful to have had 
you know, a job in health insurance during the early stage of a pandemic. But also sometimes I'm a little jealous of the people that got to have, you know, three months off. Like, like that kind of sounds great. There's an uncertainty with that. But I'm also like, you sound so rested. Like, I'm still so tired. So there's a balance in that. But yeah, I think that was something that was just a different experience than what we had seen and was very much appreciated and just kind of fun in terms of exposure to different wines. The court of Master Sommeliers, which is the most famous of the, or at least most known of the three bodies, they had a scandal a few years ago. If you don't know the scandal, you can look it up. It's pretty easy to find. I think it was like six Master Psalms were essentially kicked out of the organization due to behavior, essentially, and some other stuff in there. The, the articles are easier to find. The last that I could find is from their website. I think there was only 28 women Master Sommeliers in the world. With the controversy, are you just done with the court of the master sommeliers or are you like open to maybe I'll go back and do the advanced if a few years down the road things actually change? Because I mean, they put a couple of the women master sommeliers, I think there's maybe like three, they got elevated to like the 11 person board and stuff like that. So who knows if that's actually like, are they serious about change or, or what? So where do you kind of stand with them? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think personally, I would still consider myself a member of the court. Um, I know I'm like a certified psalm and not as, as influential as, you know, like a Chris Dillman or Greg Stokes. I feel like I worked really, really hard for that examination. And within wine education, it is the only certification that people have heard of in a lot of ways. So I think part of that is obviously because of documentaries like Psalms. Um, some people are like, oh, you're going for your sommelier exam. Or some people will be like, you're going for master. I'm like, no, I'm not. Like, I'm not going for master. So there is that kind of like, okay, let me readjust your expectations. But I feel like you can't change things that you're not a part of. So I, for me, I feel like it's a, important to still be a part of it and be a voice for, yes, these things need to change. I had been a part of some of the listening panels that they hosted and talking about some of the issues at large. I think there are a lot of things that do need to change and some of them will be very slow. And we need people to be a part of those changes, but also remember, so it's not like a lip service thing, right? Where it's like, oh, we're going to change this and this and this, and we're going to wait for the publicity to die down. And then we're going to go back to business as usual. And it's like, if you... I wholeheartedly respect people. They're like, I'm done. I'm walking away. Everyone's had different experiences with the court. I personally had a very positive experience, but I also acknowledge that I was in secondary and tertiary markets, right? Like I wasn't in New York or LA or Chicago or these like really concentrated areas. Like we in Columbus specifically have an amazing wine community because we're small. Like everyone kind of knows each other for the most part. Everyone's super supportive of each other. So I think that's something that I acknowledge as my experience being in a smaller market. But if everyone just walks away, then you can't change it. So I personally will not be pursuing any further examinations with the court unless there's some major overhaul. But also advanced sommelier kind of only makes sense if you're in restaurants. And I love restaurants, but that's not where I want to stay. I think it's kind of one of the unfortunate things about the industry is like we are so passionate about it and we love it so much and we 
as a society expect so much of our service staff, but we don't pay them and we don't provide health insurance and things that you need to make a life. So I think it's just unless those things start changing. And I know Chris mentioned a lot of that in his episode about the need for health insurance, like especially during a pandemic, like the people that are most exposed have no safety net of health insurance. That's not okay. So that's kind of where I stand with the court. Um, And I will say one of the most positive things in my experience with the court of common use is it very much comes across as a community. Like you can meet some from other cities and not that you can't connect with people in a different way, but it's kind of this whole, I don't know if it's because everything is so under lock and key, but you're kind of like, oh my gosh, when did you test? And there's just these kind of conversations and getting to just meet amazing people throughout the journey. And especially within my experience, Chris Dillman was so influential in helping us prepare for the tasting portion because that was, you know, you can purchase bottles that you're like, okay, this is on the list. But if you don't have the background knowledge at the time, I didn't, the full background knowledge of what that producer is like, what is their style? Is this classic style or is this a more modern style? It's, you're just kind of guessing. So Chris facilitated a tasting for our group and at the refectory. And he was like, here, here are all testable wines. And it was a good, just kind of litmus of like, okay, how ready am I? Like, how can I, how much of these can I guess or be close? Are you able to enjoy going out to dinner or do you compulsively check the wine list to see what they have? Mm, this is a very great question. So twofold, I still love going out to dinner. Happy hour is kind of my sweet spot because I love to go out to dinner and be home by 8.30. <laughs> I think having worked in distribution, it changes your expectations of a wine list because you know the cost of what things are. So I will say there are times I go out to dinner And depending on what the margin of that restaurant is, I'll look at a wine and be like, I know that that is a $14 bottle wholesale and you want how much money for it? That's the point where I'm just like, I'll just have a cocktail. I can't make it my house. Like that's kind of the route I go. So that's kind of my personal, just like, I know the value of things, which is really helpful. But I also can tell you times where you're like, okay, this distributor owns this list because X, Y, and Z are on it. Right. Like, Kind of going back to the cocktails with liquor, you're like, oh, which distributor is doing the most for these people? You can tell by looking at the list. <laughs> like most people wouldn't know that. But if you're in the industry, you're like, oh, if it has Tangeray and this and that and Kettle One, you're like, oh, that's Diageo. Like kind of thing like that where you're like, most people don't care. But these are the things we think about in distribution. You're like, dang, they must be getting a lot of bar maps. Columbus is mostly a beer town. I think probably maybe Napa Cab, if anything, getting into wine. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but I mean, we have probably 60, 65 like breweries, I feel like probably by now. It's definitely over 60. Do you think the city's drinking habits are beginning to shift away from beer to other beverages? Or do you think like it's always going to kind of be a beer town and like you'll have secondary markets and little bubbles and stuff like that, but it's still primarily always going to be a microbrewery city? Um, I think the continuation of microbreweries is going to be what are you bringing to the table in terms of food? I think there are a couple brew pubs around the city that are making fantastic food. And then I think there are some that you're just like, this experience from start to finish is mediocre. I am not a beer person. I will drink a beer. Don't get me wrong. I don't get excited about it. Or it has to be really like esoteric and strange to be like, oh, this is a triple saison. I'm like, cool, let's try it. Like, 
<laughs> I'm like a logger. I'm like, cool. There's a million of those. I would love to see there be a shift in Columbus market specifically to being more educated wine drinkers. I think the more you know, the more you're willing to venture out and try something different. There are some really great restaurant concepts that are doing kind of some of those lesser known esoteric varietals by the glass, which is super fun. Like as a song and as someone who is in distribution, I get really excited about that. But I also know the realization of yeah, you can have a greener vet liner by the glass and that's phenomenal and I'm super excited about it. I will probably order it, but that's not the placement that you want. You want the entry-level cab because that's the one you're going to be going through a case or two a week. Like it kind of becomes a depletion game. So I try really hard within working in distribution to keep wine fun. That's something I'm super grateful for. Some of my wine friends that are, we just do weird wine nights where like bring the weirdest, most esoteric thing that you can find. Some people bring natural wines. I'm like, hmm, we'll see. But I think if we can, in an approachable manner, educate the average consumer in Columbus, we can elevate the whole city in terms of drinking experience. And it doesn't have to be anything extravagant, like, oh, go take an examination. It's just like, do you know why you like Pinot Grigio? Do you you like Chardonnay or do you just drink it? Because that's what everybody tells you to drink. So I like to ask those questions of like, why do you like that? Do you want to try this instead? Like this is, this might be more fun or just a different experience. I love taking varietals that people are like, I don't like that. And I'm like, you haven't tried every expression of this varietal, especially Riesling. Some Washington Rieslings can be super sweet and people are like, I don't like that. And I'm like, that's okay. You don't have to like a Washington Riesling, but you can't tell me you don't like Riesling. Because I'm going to bring over a Grand Cru Alsatian Riesling that's dry, and you're going to change your tune real quick. How do you think, since you've kind of been back and growing up here, but how do you think the food and restaurant industry in Columbus has changed since you've kind of been in the industry? What do you think still needs to change? And then where do you think Columbus as a, as a food and wine city is headed for the rest of the decade? Having lived in Tucson... That is a smaller city than Columbus, but is a world uh, UNESCO site for gastronomy versus being from Columbus are two kind of wildly different experiences. I think the Columbus food scene has really solid restaurants and just fun things that are going to be standouts, right? I also think that the food scene in Columbus can be very pedestrian. I think we are wanting to be super passionate foodies. And I definitely think there are those people. I don't always think that we're willing to pay for that experience. And I feel like you're seeing a lot of major restaurant, like I don't want to say conglomerations, that's not the right word, but like restaurant groups from other cities come in and start like building all of these concepts. And I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing, but I don't love the way that it is changing the ethos of the Columbus food scene. Like it sounds, it just feels like there's a lot of like, oh, we're doing this and it's flashy and it's new. And it's like, but is it good? Like, I just feel like there's like, every time I turn around, there's someone from Cleveland being like, we're opening a restaurant in Columbus. I'm like, great. Like, where are the taco trucks? Where are like these super passionate food people that live in the city, they need a shot. We don't need more restaurants that it's like, it's $15 for a salad and it's a mediocre salad. I'm like, listen, let's just have really good food. Like some of my favorite 
spots in the city are just kind of hole in the walls, but they're authentic. And you're just like, this is great. So I would like to see it continue to be elevated. But I think we're kind of going through Columbus itself is growing so quickly, right? Like the housing market's exploding. People are flocking here, which is good and bad, in my opinion. Like as someone who considers themselves from here, I'm like, I remember getting to anywhere in the city in like 15 minutes and now it's up to 25 because there's just a lot of traffic and you're like okay are we about to be Atlanta where it takes an hour to get from one side of the city to another but at the same time it's fun to be part of a city that's vibrant and growing so there's pros and cons to that but yeah I think it'll be interesting to see where the identity of the city lands in the next five years because I think we're definitely in a massive transition right now. What's next for you professionally? I mean, you're doing wine sales, you're getting ready to study again for the W set, but I mean, no interest really in going back to restaurants right now, but do you want to open a wine shop one day? Do you want to work for a vineyard out West in Napa? Like, what do you think? I kind of could go two different ways. I think the, uh, the luxurious side of like working in tasting room in a vineyard sounds fantastic. I mean, I, that might be something I intern at at some point or do for a season just for the experience because um, I kind of make choices in my life that's going to be like, what's going to be fun, a cool experience and force me to grow. So that definitely is a possibility. I'm not going to rule that out. I would definitely love to go to one of my favorite producers in Napa. Like I would love to like work at Nickel Nickel's Tasting Room or Farniente or Cade. Like that would just be super fun. I also think at some point I will not be in distribution eventually and maybe start something on my own. I'm kind of putting together some ideas of what that could be, but it's really encouraging to see the way the wine industry is kind of turning into its own little gig economy, going around the three-tier system, right? Where you have your producer, you have your distributor and supplier, like after prohibition, everybody kind of fell into their role. There are some amazing people that are doing some really cool and innovative things and are going, like not going around, but kind of getting creative with how they can do that within that structure, right? Because laws haven't changed since the 1930s. And again, there's too much money in it. So they're not going to be like, Congress isn't going to be like, hey, we're going to make it easier for people to get alcohol without having a distributor. The distributors are making too much money. They're not going to let that happen. But at the same time, it's like there's so many cool and innovative things. I definitely will do something experiential. I would love to tie in um, like private tasting where, you know, I can come to your house and be your private sommelier basically. And then you get to enjoy your dinner. And I essentially act as the host where I'll take care of all the wine. I'll take care of the service of everything and like maybe partner with a chef and you have a tasting menu at your house. Um, I think that would be something I would absolutely love to do. Um, further down the road, just because it's tying in the experience of food and wine, but also the luxury of it too. That's what I do like about service is everything just, you kind of get to finesse the details and everything gets to be smooth and flawless and distribution. Sometimes you're like, I'm throwing cases in my car because, you know, the case got broken or someone forgot to order the wine they needed. So some days, some days my Instagram will be like, the most luxurious wine I've ever tasted or, oh, this is something super cool and fun. And the other days it's like, well, here's a pallet of wine that I'm loading into my car to deliver to seven different stops in the city. So please don't think that being a wine sales rep is a luxurious job because sometimes, yes, we get access to some of the coolest wines. Like it was fun to get to taste Opus One when I was like, I would never afford this bottle. But also there are days where you're like, I'm working till 6.30 on a Friday delivering things all over the city of Columbus. 
you're like, here's your three cases, here's your five cases. And then you get home at the end of the night and you're like, I just need a glass of wine or a cocktail, I guess. Something just depends. So this question comes from Chef Bill Glover. He's the CEO at Ray's Hog Pit, Columbus, Ohio, previous guest on the podcast. So he left behind a question. What profession would you have chosen if it wasn't wine? Honestly, I don't know because I kind of feel like wine chose me and I didn't consciously choose it, but I don't think there's anything else I'd want to do. Maybe like a travel agent. I love traveling and getting to like facilitate that experience for people would be fun. And yeah, so maybe that. What's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest? Can be anything. Okay. So you get to have one wine. So your last wine you're ever going to drink for whatever reason. I'm not going to say it's like, you know, desert island or deathbed wine, but it's your last wine. What are you going to drink? Writing question from one of our listeners. What's the one wine that you haven't had or haven't been able to find that you've been keeping an eye out for? I really love that question. Wow. Uh, I'm going to take a second to think about that one. I should probably have it ready to go, but I think that's just one of those things in distribution. I'm not always searching for a specific wine because I'm like, oh, if that wine's out of stock, I'll find something else that sounds just as lovely. I would really love to try a 2008 Dom Perignon. I feel like I've always heard it's like a phenomenal vintage. I don't know if there's any left, but um, I feel like that would be one of those that it was the year I graduated high school. So I was just like, oh, that'd be fun. You know, I don't know if I'll ever find it, but I'll just have to find a couple hundred dollars to have in like a GoFund if it ever comes across. So we're going into questions we ask all the Psalms that come on the podcast here. It's a nice compare and contrast for everybody listening. Tinkered with them a little bit, but who was the biggest influence on your sommelier career thus far? I would say my previous manager and mentor. Um, he'd been in the industry for like 40 years. So just a super fun person to sit down and talk about. Like, tell me about the wine world in the 70s. Like, it's not like the Wild West. So tell me all about it. Also, he has opened some wines from his cellar for our, our team to taste. And it was probably like the most fun experience in terms of getting to try, you know, a 75 Napa Cab versus a 89 Bordeaux. Those are wildly different. And I think it's interesting the way wines age because initially I think Napa Cabs kind of shrink bigger and bolder and a little bit more palate friendly initially, but I don't think they have the age capabilities of Bordeaux, like an older Bordeaux. Um, we had a bunch of wines on the table and we all tasted them. We were like, okay, this is cool. Or this is oxidized or, oh, wow, you're getting a lot of like pencil shavings and like uh, muddled current out of this one because it's older. Great to experience it. But then the ones we were going back for were the European wines. So um, getting to try 1990 uh, Sauternes was phenomenal just in terms of like it was super dark and kind of almost oxidized, but it was still incredible. So that was probably the most influential person. What is your desert island wine? Mm, uh, Billy Court Salmon Brut Rosé. It's my go-to celebration wine every time I pass an exam or have some sort of just like major life change. I'm like, we're buying a bottle. So it's one of my go-to. What's a restaurant that you'd recommend that isn't Martini? Mm. So it's relatively new. They opened during COVID. It's out at Easton. So it's called Sono Woodfire. And they are coming from the Good Eats group out of Chicago. Um, it's their first concept here in Ohio. And it's a Michelin recommended restaurant. So you have to go try the scallops. They're 
it's an appetizer and it's one of the most incredible things I've ever eaten. Been there. We got pizza, I think, when we went there. Their pizzas are really good. But yeah, go back and have the scallops and the um, lobster gnocchi. Oh my God. So good. And they're, I don't even like mushrooms, but their mushroom ravioli is phenomenal. So bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant. Is there any place that you haven't been that you want to go to and any place that you haven't eaten that you want to go to? So there's so many uh, wine regions I haven't been to that I'm dying to go to, but I would say bucket list wine region. I want to go to Alsace, um, just drink a bunch of Grand Cru Riesling and just there's so many restaurants there that I just feel like are have such a reputation granted I would like to go try to see if they're stand up to the name but and just the history of that region I find really fascinating and then bucket list restaurant would probably be Tour d'Argent in Paris my mentor actually just went there recently and he was sending me pictures of the menu and the food and he's like you have to come here and he sent me a picture of the wine list and it's literally probably the size of like three Bibles stacked on top of each other. It's incredible. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working. Okay. So this is going back to Martini. There was a person, (laughs) a person who was outside who was intoxicated and was kind of belligerent. And there was an officer who was like, Hey, you need to calm down. Like, I feel like there was some sort of convention or something happening. So there was just already like police presence in the, um, area and this guy like went to take a like swing at the cop obviously he wasn't going to handle that so he um tased him just to like subdue him and the guy fell down and like was right next to uh the horse that the like the cop was basically in charge of he was obviously knocked out cold and then the horse actually shit on his head. I feel like it's a good litmus test for me. It's like every time I'm having a bad day, it's like, well, I'm not cased on the concrete with a horse shitting on my head. So that's a good start. Like it was just one of those things. I'm like, this can't be real. Like this has to be something out of like Reno 911 or something like that. Like this isn't real. And it was, there've been a lot of like good martini stories but i think that was the one that stuck out the most we were just like and this guy was unconscious so he didn't even realize like what had happened like i can't even imagine what it was like to come back to consciousness and be like i'm literally covered in horseshit food or drink guilty pleasures or anything fast food or junk food anything in the grocery store that you try and stay away from so this is very specific, but I think this is something I brought back from my two fun days. Um, there at Trader Joe's is a uh, Takis equivalent, but it's not actually Takis brand. And it just has like a bunch of chili powder on it, which I love. And it doesn't have like the red dye 40. So I was like, that's excellent. But um, thankfully they put them in small bags, but I'm like, that's one of those things I, if I'm trying to be like mindful of my eating, I just can't even go down that aisle at Trader Joe's because it's like, it's subconscious. It just ends up in the cart. And I would also say Jenny's ice cream. Which of the following documentaries would you recommend? So this used to be a big longer category, but I split it up because I think maybe people got somewhat confused. So Psalm, Psalm 2, Psalm 3, Sour Grapes, Decanted, or Blood into Wine? Mm, I think I'm going to have to say Sour Grapes, not because it's like your classic, like, get into wine. Um documentary right but i also think that wine has this reputation of being super snobby um which it can be 
but the fact that there was this guy that came infiltrated like the most like upper echelon tiers of the wine world and just duped them all and then it was like a producer who came in and was like disproving everything i just think it's fantastic like obviously i don't condone like fraud but i just think that it's an incredible story you're like oh there's some things that have changed from this right where it's like now we have extra i don't know just the ways that they verify old wine is what it is i just find that fascinating which of the following wine movies would you recommend so bottle shock a good year uncorked or sideways i don't really like i mean i've never seen sideways but i don't like it because of what it did to merlot it pretty much like decimated that industry and people are like i won't drink merlot and like you're crazy merlot's delicious so not that one but i would say bottle shock it's kind of just a fun one if you're you know interested in like watching a mindless movie about wine it's kind of fun so wine recommendations. So under $20, under $50, under $100, and no limit over $100. So under $20, sparkling wine. I mean, champagne is my absolute go-to. I love it for just about every occasion. But Piper Sonoma, which is the uh, California project of Piper Heidzik Champagne House, has a Blanc to Blanc sparkling from... California that is, I believe in Ohio, it's around $18.99 retail and it's absolutely fantastic. Under $50. Under $50. I would say Pierre Spar, Schrenenberg, Grand Cru Riesling. To find a Grand Cru for under $50 is pretty fantastic. And it's also a really great Thanksgiving wine. Under $100. Under $100, I would say... I would say probably a Chateau Lenneurs, Chateau Neuf de Pop, just because I feel like when I was studying and tasting for certified sommelier, that was kind of the first time I really dove into different varietals and just in terms of exposure, um, that was one of the first wines that absolutely just blew my mind. Um, I had a very distinct beginning, middle and end, and it was kind of a aha moment. So I think it retails for like between 55 and 70, depending. And then 100 or over, no limit. 100 or over. Yeah, that's a tough one. I would probably, because I just want to drink all of them. I'd probably say a Tete de Cuvée. Like I really love Belle Epoque from Perrier Jouet. It's just a really fun, um, and it's fun to get to try the vintages side by side to get to see like some of the differences. And just with all of the things that are happening with the climate change in Champagne, it's like, Grab the Tete Cuvées while you can and save them. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan. Not everybody is. If you were, is there a moment, scene, episode that stands out? If you weren't, was there somebody else who is like a culinary or wine TV personality you always gravitated towards when you were coming up through the wine industry, whether it was Emerald or Julia Child or, or something like that? Yeah, I think... Um... I'm definitely an Anthony Bourdain fan. I wouldn't say I'm like, I know a ton of his like specific quotes, but I feel like every time I see one of his quotes about like travel and wine, I'm like, yes, he gets it. This is what it's about. But yeah, Julia Child, I just feel like what she did for exposure to Americans for French cooking and just kind of paved the way, especially back during that time to have like a really kind of well-known female personality and culinary. I feel like it's kind of a trailblazing moment. Where can people find you? Social media, website, plug everything. You can find me on Instagram. My handle is Amanda underscore Moss. And 
kind of a personal page. I definitely like to post occasional, um, definitely in stories, but we'll do occasional like wine posts of here's some fun things. Or I like to sometimes go on like education tangents a little bit of please stop blaming sulfites for your hangover. You're just dehydrated. Drink water before you drink wine and you won't be have as many issues. And yeah, I'll definitely be putting probably a website together here shortly. So I'll definitely link that on my Instagram page. That's kind of one of the things I want to do for 2022 is start just compiling some just recommendations and just some of my favorite wines. Also, if you're really interested in learning more things about wine, Kendi Warden, who I know you've had on the podcast is a really dear friend. And she has a phenomenal site on Instagram called The Grape Grind. And she does a lot of education and we do a lot of tasting together. So sometimes we'll just do joint things where we are like sharing different things about wine and it's just super fun. I think that's my favorite thing about the industry is how community oriented it is. Well, I appreciate you coming on, taking some time out of, you know, your night and everything. You definitely like schooled me on some stuff that I I just had no idea about, especially like the wine sale stuff. Like you just don't know. So, and I don't think anybody like really knows unless you work in the industry. So, I mean, that was awesome. Thank you. I will say one last thing about wine and like wine sales and purchasing. It is worth spending the money to start with a 10 to like $15 bottle of wine in terms of quality. I would say I would not spend less than $15 on a bottle of wine personally, just because of the additives and just some of the things that end up in that like bulk bottom tier wine. Like by the time you get to that, you're like, it's barely grape juice. <laughs> like there's, there's not any tannins. There's barely any acid or, I mean, obviously they're still making wine, but there is such a quality difference between $8 bottles of wine and $15 a bottle of wine. So I would encourage all of you to just start at like the $15. Uh, you'll thank me later. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't agree with that more. I would tell you to start a little bit higher. You know more than I do. So I'll defer to you on that. Yeah. I mean, drinking on a budget on a Tuesday night, you're like, I don't want to start with $20. That sounds, sounds like we're only going up from here. And it sounds like we're blowing the budget on a Tuesday. I mean, depending, right? But again, thank you for coming on. I'm excited to see, you know, when you put your website together over the course of the year and, and it sounds like you got some stuff in the works. So I'm excited to, to see all that come to fruition for you and stay in touch. If you ever need anything from us, feel free to reach out. We always want to support everybody that comes on the podcast as much as we can. But otherwise, I will let you get back to your evening. Hopefully, you're able to find a nice bottle of wine or a cocktail or something if you had a rough day. I appreciate. Yeah. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time and just getting to have a conversation. It's one of my favorite things. So thanks so much, Ray. Really appreciate it. A big thanks again to Somalia Amanda Moss for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of her evening after working all day and, and jumping on the, the microphone and chatting with me about wine and wine sales and her career and everything. So it's a really awesome episode. Like I said, she broke down stuff in the wine sales kind of area that I never really knew or thought of or, or gave you know more than a second of my time to actually think about and consider. So it was super educational for me. So I hope it was for everybody that was listening. Again, be on the lookout for future endeavors from her. Um, she's getting ready to kind of launch her own website and, and stuff like that. So in the coming months, uh, you'll see some updates from her, but make sure to give her a follow on Instagram at Amanda underscore Moss. 
Also check out our Instagram at SpoonMob. Uh, check out the website, SpoonMob.com. We got all the podcasts, all the pages, contact info from everybody that's been on the podcast too as well. So you can find them on Instagram or the website, where to make reservations or set up blind tastings, all that stuff. Uh, again, like Amanda said, make sure to check out the Grape Grind too as well if you're interested in getting into wine. It's really educational. It's really informative. It's great stuff that, that Kendi's working on and putting together week in and week out and it's part of her kind of studying for future exams and everything like amanda talked about them getting ready to to start studying up again but if you ever were wondering even just considering exploring wine you know i would definitely point you in that direction it's it's really amazing stuff that she's putting together and it helps people kind of understand and, and stuff like that too as well so and she does blind tastings and everything like that so check all that stuff out too if that's something that you want to explore but that is it for this week. Uh, more episodes on the way. Appreciate everybody listening. Continue to help spread the word. That's kind of the biggest way that we grow. Every episode seems to be getting bigger and bigger. So if you're new to the podcast, welcome. Uh, if you've been here for a while or since the beginning, thank you for listening. And thank you for continuing to listen. Really appreciate it. More cool stuff is on the way. So we got a bunch of great guests lined up, some local, some not local. So there's going to be uh, some pretty interesting episodes coming up, and uh, we look forward to sharing those with you guys. But until then, we will see you guys and talk to you guys next week.